My name is Lezek and I will be talking to Fabian Moosley about diverse experiences of tech professionals and the challenges of product management. Uh, can you take us through your professional journey leading up to your current role as the CPO or C Chief Product Officer and co-founder at C Certifaction? By the way, I love the name. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, sure. With pleasure. Um, so I actually started my professional journey uh, as a software developer. Uh, what, what really intrigued me back then was how powerful software can be in, in solving problems and automating tedious work. I guess I was always a bit lazy and wanted to automate and, uh, but also enabling entire new business models. Uh, so I enjoyed programming, but I, I wanted to understand the software business a bit more broadly. So I studied business engineering, then went back right back into the software industry in various roles, um, very hands-on. I did almost everything you can do in that business, still writing some code, customizing stuff, installing and configuring, you know, doing user trainings, workshops and all that. I think it's, that, that's quite good for, for a start because you, you develop an instinct later, what, what's going to work with a product and what's not going to survive in reality. And um, also understand the uh, the technical context, the business context, everything, not just like a product in a void. Uh, just to say, yeah, that's cool. absolutely like even. I think I would especially highlight doing user trainings because then you see mm. what what the typical user fails to grasp instinct uh, intuitively, and yeah. So that's a great point, I think. Yeah. Um, I later switched industry to finance, building a brand new product for, for banks. And that was also quite a remarkable station in my career um, because of the broad spectrum of things they let me do. And it was also interesting, like the, the whole company of 400 people had just one designer and he actually worked for marketing. So he, he helps design products on the side. <laughs> uh, so. It was uh, business analysts and yeah, people like me actually designing the, the software products. Mm -hmm. um, but there I, I developed a, a real passion for, for building products from scratch, you know, not just um, configuring them and putting them to work. Uh, and after that, uh, I... I wanted to sniff some startup air. So I was looking around and eventually joined a blockchain startup in Zurich. And I guess that was, again, a completely new learning experience because it's, it's about scaling a company, not just working on a product, but doing that on the side as well, though. And it created a lot of opportunities. I, uh, I developed from a product manager to taking on management responsibilities. And, and there we experimented with a new concept, uh, a new, a concept for a new product, but the founders didn't really warm up to that idea. <laughs> and, but the whole team liked it. So we decided to do a spin-off, take the product and the team with us and that's how Certifaction was born. Mm -hmm. so I became a, a co-founder and took on the nice. CPO role. Nice. Yeah. 
Can we talk about certification now? Uh, can you explain the product, uh, the solution, or what specific problems are you addressing for the customers? Sure. So a few quick facts about certification. It's uh, venture-backed with European and U.S. investors currently in its fourth year in business, uh, roughly 20 people and lots of freelancers on top of that. Uh, core team is in Switzerland, actually, but we have people all over Europe and Africa. Uh, it's mostly a remote company, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the problems we're solving... Um, like we actually pivoted from blockchain-based certification of documents uh, to the e-signature market because we established the company right when COVID hit. Suddenly mm -hmm. everyone was in lockdown and needed to sign digitally. So we went full in. So the primary problem, I'd say, is the old way of completing legal transactions is too slow, uh, too expensive, and also quite error prone and that primary problem comes with a whole subset of other problems that we're trying to solve um it's there are some incredibly simple use cases and applications for that have been around for a decade and more docusign <laughs> but there are still companies that can't find the right solution for their use case and that's where we're working. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're focusing on solving the hard problems that have not been solved yet. And so you want contracts to be signed as quickly as possible. And the users, the designers can be anyone, like really inexperienced, low tech affinity, um, using all kinds of devices. And it, it has to work 100% of the time. That's, that's a huge challenge from a UX standpoint, but also technically. And identity is a key part of business transactions. You need to know who's signing. You need to be sure mm. that it's that person signing to eliminate fraud risk. And then we have these tough data protection laws uh, that pose legal risks to companies and create huge compliant, compliance costs. And even if there weren't these privacy laws. Lots of companies still have very sensitive data that they can't sign with DocuSign and others just because it's too risky for them. Oh, okay. There are companies that have blacklists of documents that are not allowed to be signed online because it's too dangerous. And sure, you can, you can run a tool on premise, but I think that's increasingly outdated and companies are not exactly thrilled to have to operate Another an application service, server yeah. in-house for something that's just to, to, supposed to be a tool, right? Not not even the, the mm -hmm. core of your business. Yeah, so that's what we're so doing. That's your niche uh, in a way. Uh, the, and you stress it in the in the positioning uh, quite strongly that this is a privacy privacy first uh, approach. Uh, can you can we? Uh, linger on that and talk a little bit about the the aspects of it being privacy first um, and also how did it come about and mm. uh, what's important for your customers here yeah so that 
something we understood very early is that um, cyber crime, all these these risks are are on the rise, and that's a trend that's never going to stop. Um, so that's a good thing to have to to have an eye on, and when you're building a new product. Um, so on one hand, we have these strict data protection laws that I mentioned, and for Europeans, we also have this conflict between European laws and the U.S. Cloud Act, where mm-hmm. that 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 U.S. law that gives all U.S. governmental agencies the right to fetch any any data of U.S.-based companies, and that that's um, that makes it borderline illegal for European uh, countries to have data in a with a US uh, based company. Yeah. The other thing is the, the cybercrime topic I, I mentioned. So what we built is something that, that we believe is fairly unique in this industry at least, is that we're processing documents locally, not on our servers, but actually in your browser. So wow, okay. So if there's no good reason for it, the document is never uploaded to our service at all. It's purely local. Um, if there's a good reason, like sharing with others, then you can use end-to-end encryption and certification has zero knowledge of your document. And you know, lots of companies are ISO certified for information security and they train their employees and have strict rules and so on. Like we do that too, of course. Um, but it shouldn't even matter in our case because we have made it technically impossible for anyone to snoop into customer documents. Interesting. But there, there, there is also this cloud part, for example, for authentic authentication and, and uh, things like that. Uh, but the documents is not uploaded anywhere. It's just kept locally. But there is, yeah, the, the, there is a cloud part, of course, I assume. Yeah, the... The application is is loaded uh, from the cloud. It's it's it's, it's a normal SaaS, mm-hmm. so you, you do not have to unst- install anything. You always have the latest version. And, cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, we I'd like to ask you about the future of document security and verification. How do you see the industry? Uh, where do you see the industry going in the next couple of years? What kind of dev- developments do you anticipate? Hmm. Yeah, trying to anticipate this for the next couple of years is something I'm supposed to do as a CPO, but it's incredibly hard. <laughs> um, sure. They, like the EU has created laws and regulation that is mostly missing in other markets. And you could argue that it's great for Europe because we have a good level of legal clarity. But on the other hand, most of Europe is then again lagging behind the US and and other parts of the world in terms of adoption of of such products and security and verification. Like There are still so many companies that that are not using electronic signatures at, at all. And that... There's a lot of mistrust in such solutions and it it's 
hard to understand, but it's what we encounter every day talking to, to, to people out there. And then another trend that we see is that many companies just purchased more or less the first product they found back then when COVID hit, and they're now looking around for something better. Um, and there's there's more information now with buyers. They, they know a bit better what they're looking for. They're more picky. More picky, so, more educated. Mm -hmm. Yes. So for sure, there's going to be a consolidation in the industry and only the best players will come out alive. And I, I anticipate that um, players that want to survive need to to really eliminate all all the blockers, all the friction. Uh, they need great UX. There's no way around it. Um, they need great data security. And of course, the price is always, competitive prices are absolute necessity. And there's so many products out there with no real differentiators, um, no unique selling proposition. So I think they're going to have a hard time. Mm -hmm. But the industry overall, information security is going to have a very good time over the next five years and beyond. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about the different kind of tensions when building a product or building a company. I'd like to start off with uh, the tension between engineers or engineering and business. <laughs> uh, yeah, what's uh, usually causing the tension between uh, the tech people and business people? What's uh, and as importantly, what's your advice for product teams to uh, to handle that such a tension? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, I've I'm I would say I'm familiar with both worlds, so I I'm usually someone to mediate between the two. Um, <laughs> Like what I see is that there's a lack of understanding for each other's field. That's almost guaranteed unless the business people have uh, looked into some software development themselves. It's, it's a bit unusual and or engineers that take an actual interest in product strategy and customers and partners of a company and so on. So what I often encounter is that there's a lack of respect for the other side. Um, people tend to think what they're doing is, is incredibly important and difficult. And what the others are doing is somehow easy. Like, what are they even doing? They're just doing meetings and whatnot. And I think when you have this lack of respect, that that's an actual problem. That's something that needs to be addressed. So you can create a bit more transparency what both sides are doing, create an understanding for each other. So people can have empathy. Why are the business people pushing the engineers to do something? Why are the engineers saying that something shouldn't be done that way? Um, and that they listen to each other and don't think that it's coming from a bad intention. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's, there's also the problem with people overreaching, uh, making decisions that they're not qualified to make. I think that's mostly business people thinking they understand just enough to decide over a product team's head. <laughs> that's, um, yes, that, 
that's something that I would handle with with structure, with with processes, with but also with a sense of humor. I'd say, and I can <laughs> in product management we have this thing uh, like the highest paid uh, people in the room opinion like shouldn't be decisive for Mm -hmm. the hippo yeah shouldn't be decisive for uh, for what what the team has to do um one more thing maybe that that i personally find very interesting i would consider myself more of an introvert if you want to work with these categories and in the software business specifically i think you have a lot of introverts a bit above average <laughs> compared to other industries while on the business side or in management you often have extroverts it just seems to be in the nature of things that that such a distribution happens and that's also a place where a lack of understanding happens where extroverts absolutely don't need don't understand what the needs of introverts are to to perform uh, best what kind of environment to create and not to pe- put people on the spot that that like to work uh, in the background behind the scenes mm-hmm. and i think a lot of companies could benefit greatly from trying to understand this better this that not all people are the same so they, they shouldn't uh, be treated the same and you need to create the right work environment for all these different kinds of people to thrive. Uh, that's a uh, that's a great advice. If I uh, if I may sum up sum it up, uh, the advice is to regularly get people to talk. Uh, those two sides of uh, same kind, get them to talk with each other with empathy, add a pinch of humor on, on top of that, and basically realize that there are different types of personality types, personality types. And um, that's the foundation. I, I, I that's my understanding. That's the foundation on how to handle this. Yes, and I would say being generous with information. There's there's also a lot of information gatekeeping happening be- between teams. And I've often heard this like they don't need to know that, but maybe they do. Like, are you sure you can judge? Who needs to know what? Uh, and does it really hurt to be a bit more generous with information? Maybe the engineers are actually interested more than you think in, in what, what you're doing and what's behind all this. And maybe the business people are also willing to indulge the engineers and, and, and read a bit about their concepts and so on. That's uh-huh. good advice. By the way, any frameworks that you would recommend regarding um, the personality types? We ourselves use Prism, which is uh, one of the one of many platforms or, or frameworks to understand personality types. And not to uh, to distinguish from Prisma, which is a Node.js and TypeScript ORM. It's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, any any anything any kind of framework you would recommend here? Um, mm, no, I, I don't really have a particular framework to recommend. 
I think it comes down to personal preference and mm -hmm. the, the people that you have. And I always prefer intuition over mm -hmm. frameworks if for, for as long as you can avoid putting more frameworks in place. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk about another tension, uh, which uh, appears um, when you have to constantly balance the needs of various stakeholders, um, from users to team members to investors. Uh, you're in that spot that you are not a bootstrap company. You have investors, you have team members that, you, that we talked about in the beginning. You have also users. How do you navigate this um, stormy waters of, <laughs> of competing demands? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the things I like the most about product management. Actually, we're, we're in the middle of everything. We're connecting everything. Uh, we have to in order to do a good job. And yeah, I think finding this balance is one of the greatest challenges in product management. The harsh truth is that you can't please everyone. You have to, like, if you try that, you will end up pleasing nobody at all. So you have to set priorities. Mm. And as, as customer centric as we want to be, sometimes we have to prioritize the interests of the company, for example. And like mentally, I tell myself that it's in the best interest of our customers that our company is successful, that it can grow and invest more and improve the products and services that they're using. So with that, I mean, is you know, like we have to say no quite often. Of course, or it's usually not a strict no, but it's like, we'll, we'll consider it. We'll, uh, we'll reevaluate it a bit later and so on. But in the end, sometimes it, you can just do a small percentage of the things that the sum of your customers would like you to do. Like one. So, so I think it boils down to really understanding the priorities of your customers. If we're staying within that stakeholder group and, and then you can make good decisions. Um, so we, one thing we do is to, to make them sort their priorities from top to bottom. And there cannot be five items that are all priority number one. That's something that mm. customers do all the time if you let them, but mm. they need to rank them and yeah. There's one priority, uh, there, not, not priorities, I, I, I suppose. <laughs> there's, well, there, there's one on, on rank one. Rank yes, two, one, rank exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah, one exactly. One rank one priority. And, and if you're so lucky, then it's, it aligns between the, the customers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think a big part is, is communication or more specifically expectation management with all the stakeholders. Um, there's, you often do too much. You do too much work because you think it's the, your stakeholder expected it. And that's something you cannot afford. So you, you clarify the expectations before you, you start doing any work. 
especially when when dealing with the investors with the board um there's there's this urge probably to please the investors to to create great reports and lots of slides and this and that but perhaps they they didn't even uh want that and and you just you would have wasted a lot of time putting that together so what I want to ask you is, I'd like to talk about uh, product evolution of your product management approach. I think it's an interesting question because many people are still ahead of this journey and um, they still need to become more product management aware and uh, develop their skill set and the evolution of perception uh, of how it all works is really important. Hence this question. Have there been any significant shifts in your mindset or perception? Uh, yes, I, w I would say my perception of product management shifts all the time. Um, most importantly, the more I learn about it, the less I feel I know in total about it. So it's it's an incredibly multifaceted uh, job or role field to be in, and there's there's not one kind of product management and. And and also there there are no clear standards. It, yeah, there there are certain frameworks that become popular and and they get uh, replaced by new ones all the time. And it's in constant movement. Um, so what I have to do is to to be learning constantly. I read book. I engage with product management communities. Um, there. Incredible podcasts, newsletters, um, Twitter subscriptions, and and so on. I think it's a a golden age for learning product management. Like, never has there been so much content, so much information, mostly for free, mm -hmm. where you can learn about product management. So, if you have the passion, the information to learn, everything is is right there. It's very easily accessible. Cool. I think that yeah, I think the learning experience is um, is most efficient if if you really focus on learning how to do a specific thing, a concrete goal, like not just to learn it in theory, but apply it right away, even if it's a mock product. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, when building. Uh, certification, what was your biggest challenge? Uh, you, you've built it from scratch and, uh, you've mentioned pivoting along the way, but are there any specific, uh, challenges that were enormous at that time and, uh, you conquered them and you could share with, uh, uh with me today? Yeah, there. There were certainly a few. I think the the first one would be would be uh, finding the true say identity of the product. You start with validating the problem, finding problem solution fit, and we had that before the pivot. What we didn't have is product market fit. So mm -hmm. we could, we could validate that there was a problem and and our product solved it. But the willingness to, to pay or to, to close a contract quickly enough that it makes sense for a startup, that wasn't there. So we pivoted and we 
noticed the, the difference right away with e-signatures. Mm, but then you see there are now hundreds probably of e-signature solutions out there and you need to be different in a way that matters. So that's the, the big challenge. And I think it's a continuous one because you cannot just uh, rest on your laurels if you have found something that works because nothing cannot be copied eventually in software. Yeah, and then it was finding the first investors. I think the first ones are the hardest because if, if you have someone who commits to investing, then others follow quite easily. Uh -huh. And that, that was a really tough time when we, we established a company, wanted to bring employees over, but couldn't sign their work contracts yet because we didn't have the money for it. And uh, yeah, time is, is running really quickly. And the, the, the runway is shorter and shorter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that, that's also a continuous challenge. And then maybe the, the third one I'd like to highlight because it's the absolute core of your business and the main reason for success is building the team, hiring good people, bringing them up to speed, aligning them and, and also keeping them in the company. That's incredibly important. And it's, yeah, it's at, at the absolute core if you want to achieve something and that's harder than finding product market fit, even harder than finding investors. It all depends on the people. Yes, I think I absolutely agree. I think it's, and it's, uh, that realization usually takes time that it's not that easy and it's, uh, and how impactful it all is. Um, so speaking of hiring people, um, how do you ensure that you're building a strong product team and that, in a, in a sense of hiring and, a, or specifically what qualities do you look for when hiring or promoting individuals? For me, it's all about the mindset. Um, this is what I look out in people. Do I, does it click with, with the mindset? Do, are we on the same wavelength? Do they have that drive, ambition and uh, high agency, I would say. Like people who are not, who do not get stuck with problems, feeling sorry for themselves, but have the agency to, to unblock themselves, to, to find a solution. And that's what you need in a startup because you cannot micromanage people. You need them to, to realize they are stuck with a problem and, and to try everything possible to find a solution. Mm. So, so, so I really think if you, you need to hire people with the right, right mindset. Um, if, if they have relevant experience or already learned the skills that you need, that's, that's great, but that's already secondary because if, if they're, if they have the right mindset, you will get them where you need them to be relatively quickly. Yeah. That's a great advice. A hundred percent agree. Alan, thank you very much. It was uh, very insightful. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights and knowledge uh, with me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Leszek. Better Tech Leadership powered by BrainHub. Follow Leszek on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Better Tech Leadership newsletter.